Welcome to American Student Radio on 99.1 WIUX. This week, our team is bringing you stories that explore togetherness in all its forms. I'm your host, James Keyes. Keep it right here. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, again, live... live... what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. There are some forms of music that bring people together in droves, one being mariachi. In this piece, producer Emily Miles brings you a story about Jonathan De La Cruz, a Jacobs Master's student, and his ensemble, Mariachi Perla de Medio Oeste. So I grew up in a Pentecostal uh, household, and um, we would go to Mexico every Friday and Saturday. Pentecostal churches have really, really long services, extremely long, like four or five hours, right? And so I started playing the trumpet because my brother and my sister had started playing the trumpet. But I didn't want, as a child, I didn't want to sit through the services that were extremely long and just you know, sit there. So I decided to join the band. So I learned all these different genres by playing with a band in Mexico. Now, a Pentecostal church, uh, not all of them, but some of them, they'll have these great musicians who can't read a lick of music, but they're incredible, right? So I did that. I started about when I was 14. Um, By the age of 15, um, I was already playing professionally with the Tejano group in Texas, in Del Rio, Texas. My first gig was on a tour bus going to somewhere in the middle of Texas at age 15. And then I started doing um, mariachi. So I wouldn't have to ask my parents for money. I would just go play a gig. And when I was a kid, you know, it was uh, make 20 bucks. Go play a gig, make 20 bucks. I was like, heck yeah, this is this is great. I started getting into jazz and I got a really big award in Texas for jazz. And I went to my undergrad, got a music education degree. Now, what changed my life was the idea of being part of the Selena legacy. So I used to be in the Chris Pettis Project, which is her husband's band. And that completely changed my career path. I got to play in the Selena Festival and the Jalapeno Festival. I got to meet him and some of the other people who knew Selena, and that's really given me a, a weight um, and a kind of understanding to that kind of music, aside from already having a Tejano background, from having a mariachi background. Now I have a Latin rock background and a kind of historical sense of Mexican-American music and by speaking with these musicians. So then I came here. What I do here at IU is that I lead the ensemble of the mariachi, it's called Mariachi Perla del Medio Oeste. Um, it's an ensemble through the Latin American Music uh, Center, and that's through Jacobs, with just me leading it. I would have rehearsals at my house. I got in touch with a few musicians from Jacobs School, and I said, hey, uh, well, Jacobs has a lot of uh, different ensembles. That At some point, it had an Afro-Peruvian ensemble, it had a Cuban son ensemble, it had Latin jazz ensemble. 
Um, it had jazz ensembles and combos. It had different chamber orchestra groups, a lot of student-run quintets and quartets, but it didn't have a mariachi. So I started this ensemble, and then I just asked for help. Um, there's a huge amount of power in asking. After a semester, I got a hold of La Casa, which is a cultural uh, center for Latinos. I was able to get a grant through them, or what I believe was a grant, which I was able to bring one of my mentors from Texas to give a clinic here. After that, we got a hold of actual mariachi instruments, because at the very beginning, we didn't have mariachi instruments. We had um, people playing upright bass. Um, we had just guitar players, violins and trumpets, and now we have the actual guitarones, we have the actual vihuelas. Yeah, it kind of started from me wanting wanting to do it for myself and to kind of have some kind of Mexican-American music presence in, in the city because there was none to my knowledge at the time. Yeah, th there's a difficulty in having a mariachi here. The, the reason why is because every once in a while you'll meet someone who's played it. Usually the members that we have are from East Chicago. What makes it difficult in comparison to Texas in Texas, if I have a group of five, six people, and I want to do a gig and or a performance. If one of the members can't do it, we can just call someone to replace them for that specific gig. Um, here, it doesn't work that way because very few people play the kind of genre. Right now, it's about 15 people. Originally, when it started, I believe it started like eight or nine. What's also challenging um, about having a huge number, well, not even a huge number, just having the group is um, not everyone sings in Spanish. Most of the members that are in it now, maybe I would say it would be safe to say half of them speak Spanish. When we started, I was the only one that spoke Spanish. So if we had an hour performance, I would sing every song. And uh, we've gotten to the point where I'm so happy that I don't have to do that anymore. I can just play my trumpet and and have someone else sing uh, which is great had its uh, ups and downs I would say the first group had a lot of diversity we had a bass player who um, was playing at the time she was Muslim we had a Korean American guitar player we had a Panamanian uh, guitar player we had a, a woman um, who was uh, placed with a very very popular Irish fiddle band. I believe she had Irish descent. And then we had a Canadian. 
and then it was me, Mexican American, and then and then we had people from the states. Yeah, um, but it was just so diverse at the very beginning. It was amazing that this kind of music, just like every other genre, can bring music together. But I had never seen it like that. I think another up for me. I think most of them have been personal, where you see people who say, you know what, I want to try something new. Can I sing? And then you just see them, you know, get out of their shell. And it's 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 a sight, yeah. Um, I think it's helped a lot of people. For a lot of people, it's just kind of a de-stressor from being in school. Um, I use a great school, but it's also extremely competitive. So you're constantly having to work. And it's a lot of uh, late nights and early mornings. So um, it helps a lot with that. I don't think this is a down, but it, it, it happens. So all these people in the group most of them are students and uh, a lot of them are extremely busy you know a lot of them are jacob students some of them are doing some other kind of major and every once in a while we'll get uh like the head of the spanish department is in our mariachi so every once in a while we'll get someone who's from teaches at jacobs interested we'll get someone who's is like uh, right now we have a 13 year old playing with us uh, violin and his parents have to go dropping off and pick him up uh, and i have to talk to his parents about his schedule and things like that so that it works out so what ends up happening is people say oh we have a mariachi group why don't you play for us uh this date and this time and it takes a very long time to coordinate 15 people to say yes we can do it and it, then it gets to the detail where if we're missing those key people that can't make it, even though 10 people can make it, but out of those 10, none of them are the singers, well, then we can't play the performance. That's been definitely a challenge here. Also, overbooking has been a challenge for us. We are the only mariachi in Bloomington. So a lot of people ask for us, and it's a lot of yeses, but also a lot of noes. I've made sure even through those sometimes, like I said, it's rough with scheduling and missing musicians and things like that. I've always made it a point to make sure we do well because somebody in the audience is always watching and they know someone who's in charge of something else in the university. So with that kind of mindset, I feel like that's a huge reason why we have so much support from different parts of the university. For the rest of our show, we dug into the ASR archives for more stories on togetherness. And up next, two IU professors talk about how working in the same department has affected their marriage. Many people are married, and most all married people have jobs. But not many married people have the same jobs in the same workplace. Bonnie and Steve Layton are lecturers at the Indiana University School of Journalism. 
When they met, Bonnie was a teacher's assistant in a class that Steve was taking in college. Tell me, describe the scene of when we first met. To me, she was this sort of really, um, you know, kind of together and uh, very well sort of established kind of person who had this bright future. And I was this sort of um, kind of uh, struggling student who was a few years older than I should have been at the time, probably, you know, dressed very shabbily and uh, trying to look like I fit in, even though I felt like I didn't. And, you know, feeling like everybody knew a bunch of things that I didn't know. So that was kind of my initial um, meeting with Bonnie. And then um, we would have met in the classroom. It would have been the first day of that class. And I'm sure there was a, uh, a time in the class where everybody introduced themselves. And I, I do remember the teacher saying that Bonnie was an expert in this software that we used at the time and you know I, I I still kind of remember her reaction to that just kind of like this aw shucks kind of reaction. And we didn't I mean we didn't become friends for quite a long time I and mean, we knew each other for maybe a year before we were sort of you know felt like we were kind of friendly. Um, before that we had more of a you know I felt like you know she was kind of you know she was kind of a connected to the teacher and I was a student, so we had kind of this sort of unlevel relationship for a long time. That's my memory of it anyway. Yeah, my memory is that I thought that when he introduced himself, he said it quite self-important. <laughs> and now I understand that that is a little bit of a defense mechanism for him. It's just a cadence in the way I speak. I <laughs> so what do you think is the best part of working together? Um, just being able to kind of, you know, share uh, our the work that we're doing and collaborate uh, and also just be able to kind of know that we can uh, drive into work together, drive home together, and that uh, we share pretty much everything that goes on in the workplace. You're not supposed to tell people that. <laughs> What's the, the, least, the least favorite part? Well, you know, you're constantly underfoot, so that's uh, – no, I'm sorry um, – I don't think there's really a kind of a bad part necessarily. Uh, you know, in our jobs, we're busy enough that we certainly aren't sort of seeing each other at all times, but we always know that uh, the other person is right next door. Uh, and we work in similar but not the same areas, so we can kind of help each other out without necessarily feeling like we're in any kind of competition because we're not. I'm glad you think that because I think we compete a lot. So we compete at things like tennis, you know, things that you know you can beat me at. So, um I don't think we really compete as far as what we're doing professionally, though. I think, you know, I about the ever moment we I thought maybe we shouldn't be working together, not in our working life, but when we were taking a class together. And I... Oh, well, we've done that before, though, too. We've, we took class, we took a class together. We've taken a couple of classes together. Um, and yeah, we're probably more competitive when we're doing that than we are when we're just kind of, you know, in our jobs. For some reason, yeah, I do feel that a little bit. Do you remember that? So we're sitting in the, sitting in the the, the bathroom. Steve is taking a bath. I am sitting in the beanbag chair studying. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember looking over at you, and thinking, I'm feeling all this pressure because I absolutely don't want to do worse than Steve on this exam. And we stayed well, up the whole night studying. Oh, you didn't. So, <laughs> the pressure was a motivating factor, and of course, in fact, I did worse. So, not by much. It was quite insignificant. We both did fine. <laughs>
I mean, you know, we we've we I think one of the things that has worked out well in our relationship is that we've had a chance to sort of I mean, sometimes it works if you meet somebody, you know, and you have a second marriage, third marriage because you've worked out all the kinks and you understand yourself better. But for us, I think being able to know each other from when we were, you know, 22 years old has sort of help because I think, you know, we've probably shaped each other a lot. And I, I always hope that I have, I mean, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, have I, have I improved this person's life? Have, did they make the right decision? And I think that's a good thing to always ask. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, do you think you improved my life? I hope so. Yeah. I'm just trying to hold up my end of the deal, really. You just heard Bonnie and Steve Blayton's story of their workplace romance. You're tuned into American Student Radio on 99.1 WIUX. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Rick Brewer, one of the producers for GPSG Radio, a podcast from the Indiana University Graduate and Professional Student Government. Each Monday, GPSG Radio provides IU grad students with the latest campus news, things to do in Bloomington, and advice about resources. But if you're a fan of storytelling, don't worry, because every once in a while, we publish stories on a big idea, event, or profile of a grad student. And soon we're coming out with an episode on something people never talk about, imposter syndrome. So for me, I started to, I was started to reflect that on myself. So therefore, I thought, since I don't know that, somehow I am now inadequate. Subscribe to GPSG Radio wherever your ears listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the show. Up next, a story about how two young lovers made the decision to get married, despite what their families thought. My name is Skylar Westfield. I am 20 years old, and I'm a student at Indiana University. My name is Brent Cannon. I'm 21, and I'm an Air Force paramedic. I knew I was ready to make Skylar my wife. I made a big decision for me and for her because I made a big professional change in my life, and I was going to be away for close to a year, and I didn't want to be boyfriend and girlfriend. It was February 1st, 2011, and there was a snowstorm outside. I woke up, went downstairs, and my brother and his kids was down there, and they was cooking breakfast, and my mom was cooking and stuff. Skylar had came over, so it was like a regular day. But then we had left, and you know how parents be, oh, it's snowing outside, where y'all going? Don't y'all need to be going nowhere in the snow? But then I was like, Mom, I'm going somewhere important. I gotta, I gotta go. It's cool. I drive safe. But I never gave her the specifics. The day that it happened, <laughs> when he brought it up the first time, um, we were in my room and we were just um, like chilling on my bed, just like talking about different stuff. And then it was quiet for a little bit. And then randomly, he was just like, "You know what? I think we should get married. Would you marry me?" He made his serious face, and then I knew he was for real, and then we, like, started talking about it. Well, I was actually in San Antonio when her parents found out, and I just got a phone call. phone call really wasn't that pleasant. 
I did not get a chance to tell my mom the way that I would have planned to do it. Um, somebody found out about it before I got to tell her and then told my sister's dad and then he like mailed her all these like marriage papers like in the mail. So I think I was leaving to go to school maybe and she was in the driveway with the papers and <laughs> I think she might have asked me like what it was and I started reading it and within like 30 seconds I was trying to figure out a way to cushion the situation a little bit to tell her without her flipping out it took some time for her to get used to it for her like you know even when she talked about Brent and I to you know call us like husband and wife and now it's fine and I mean we're like a family she calls him you know her son and it's good now so I don't really think that I would change anything because I think when you go through trials and tribulations I think there still would be a real good lesson behind it to be learned. So I don't think I'll change anything. Just because I think in the long run, I think that made our marriage even stronger. Our last story on today's show comes from ASR alum Barry Finkel, who in this next piece talks about her tattoos and skin. Because our skin keeps us together, right? I'm Barry Finkel. I'm a junior uh, at Indiana University. So originally I wanted to get these balloons because I had a balloon blankie from when I was little. I got it in the hospital when I was born and I sleep with it every night. And then I decided against that and thought of this idea. If you were to like place your hands on your hips, like the way that your fingers fold over, that's exactly where my tattoos are my left side of the body, I have um, the world was created for me. And then on my right side, I am but dust and ashes. Uh, the font is a type of cursive, but the guy did his own thing with it. It's not as frilly um, as some cursive fonts might be. It's a bit simpler. I'm Jewish, and I went to a Jewish summer camp called Asrui for all of my life. And there, every Shabbat, which is Friday night, uh, it's a holiday every Friday, uh, we get together, my entire camp, like a thousand people in this one huge room, and we have a song session. And the song leader's are in the middle, and we all sing, it's really fun, and then our camp director comes out, and he starts to tell a story. This man who's very unbalanced in his life, he goes to his rabbi for advice, and the rabbi tells him to keep two pieces of paper, one in each pocket. One piece of paper says, the world was created for me. And the other piece of paper says, I am but dust and ashes. And so with that, he is able to stay at a neutral balance at all points in time because they're always in his pockets, but that's difficult to do. <laughs> um, so when he's feeling too low and he needs to be brought back up to a neutral level, he pulls out, the world was created for me. And when he's feeling too high and he's boasting, he pulls out, I am but dust and ashes. And that is his way, and now my way, of staying balanced and neutral. Literally in the tattoo shop, like, 
I was in the waiting area and I just kept thinking, am I gonna want this when I'm 30? Yeah, like 30 is still pretty young. I'm gonna want it when I'm 40. Yeah, I think so. 50, 60, and I went up to 80 and I was like, at 80, you know, who cares? <laughs> You're wrinkly, so whatever. It was September of my freshman year of college at IU, uh, so I was 18. The person that I worked with, uh, who was my tattoo artist, he was familiar with calligraphy. That was kind of one of his strong suits. And so I wrote it in cursive, and then he transcribed it into this cool calligraphy of his own. So I have the words on my left side of the body. I have, the world was created for me. And then on my right side, I am but dust and ashes. Since the story is so personal and I didn't want it to be bogged down by some sort of art. <laughs> I wanted the words to speak for themselves. When I was thinking about that and I thought what are the pockets of your body they're kind of you know above your hips and they're curved so it looks more natural it's not something just like placed on my body. They're simple they're meaningful no one can see them unless I show them to them people do get tattoos because it's something so meaningful to them that they want people to see it. But that's not the type of meaningful that this story has for me. So keeping them in a place that is my own, it made me feel like this is really my own thing. Barry Finkel. She's now a producer at Pineapple Street Media in New York City. That's all the stories we have about togetherness on this edition of American Student Radio. Tune in next week for our 24-hour story challenge. I'm James Keyes. Thanks for listening. American Student Radio is a student-run audio storytelling group at Indiana University in Bloomington. We broadcast new shows every Sunday at noon on 99.1 WIUX and on our podcast. Find us wherever your ears listen to podcasts. Our theme music comes from Lunamatic. Special thanks to our advisor, Amy Gastelum. You can follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or find us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back with more stories next week.